0: And welcome to this month's episode of the Biotechniques Talking Tech News podcast. Today we'll be talking to Stephen Taylor from the Medical Research Council Weatherall Institute at the University
1: of Oxford. But first, some introductions. I'm Tristan, the digital editor of Biotechniques. Uh, and I'm Theo, the digital intern. Over the course of this podcast, we will cover virtual reality, its current use in the life sciences and bioinformatics, the challenges facing the technology, and just how far it can go. So, Stephen, can you please tell us about yourself? And the
0: research you're currently working on with your group
2: hi yeah um, so uh, my group is called the analysis visualization and informatics group and the aim of the group is to develop new state-of-the-art methods to understand biomedical data sets and this should hopefully provide research scientists advanced computational software tools and expertise to work on their own data more efficiently um, so we're really trying to uh, give the scientists more insight into the molecular and cellular processes in health and disease. And we've got a strong track record of developing software that's uh, both powerful and easy to use. I think that's really key um, because there are lots of tools and databases in bioinformatics out there, but we're only really using a small percentage of the functionality, especially the people who really need to use them, which is the biologists. So um, we're really Making these tools really usable and integrating the solutions, so maximising how the biologists can interact with all these resources.
0: Okay, fantastic. So, do you think VR has the potential to fill a specific gap in life science research, or do you feel it presents more of an opportunity to improve on existing techniques?
2: in the use of 3D and virtual reality Um, since I did a project on it in my computer science MSC, which is about 30 years ago now. um, But, you know, virtual reality actually goes back to the 60s, um, and 3D even goes back to the 1800s. So I think the technology's catching up um, what we want VR to do, uh, and I think it's got a really good place in what we want to do now because data's getting larger, uh, more complex. Everybody's always talking about big data. Um, And really, I think as humans, we're wired to understand and interact in three dimensions. And so it seems a shame, not if there's technology there, it seems a shame not to be able to tap into this innate ability and explore complex data sets or complex 3D images. And, um, you know, a, a good example of this is Where everybody's looking at big data, say for example using uh, point clouds uh, and doing uh, clustering with that, we're only looking at two dimensions generally and you know
1: if you can look at the third dimension that gives actually more information. And you're currently developing a genetic visualization program called CSYNTH. What are the intended goals of this technology and similar technologies?
2: So um, C-Synth um, is a collaboration between Oxford and, and Goldsmiths University in London. And um, we got we got talking to Goldsmiths because they're experts in computer graphics and they had a uh, protein viewer that they called FoldSynth. And when I saw this, we got chatting at a conference and um, I saw that could be adapted to visualise how um, chromatin folds uh, and hence we call it C-synth after sort of like the technologies, which are chromosome capture technologies such as Hi-C and, and uh, C um, And so what we're doing at the WIM, we're trying to understand how alterations in the genome uh, can cause disease. And this is beyond the direct mutations uh, to um, just genes. Uh, we're really interested in the non-coding regions. And the packing of the DNA in the nucleus is the key to all this. Um, you probably know that uh, GWAS, for example, um, uh, has been, was once sort of seen as a big sort of saviour of trying to understand where the hotspots in the, in the genome are for instances, of, so you can focus on these for looking at, say, uh, people's predisposition to heart disease or predisposition to diabetes. But what they found was that uh, nearly 90% of those hotspots fell outside of the genes. And but they did fall in areas of chromosome accessibility, so um the mutations in the chromosomal uh, regulatory architecture causes the changes in folding basically, and there is increasing evidence that these are major processes in biology. this folding um can if it 's not done correctly um uh, can cause problems with lymph formation, cancer diabetes and more recently autism and there's lots more diseases coming out and this is seen as a a big area of development for um, drug companies as well as they've kind of got rid of the low-hanging fruit uh, from looking at mutations in the genes. So and because imaging um, the nucleus and these kind of interactions these, the way that the, the chromatin folds in, in, in the actual nucleus is, is still really difficult. There's uh, next-generation sequencing techniques, such as uh, chromosomal, chromosomal confirmation capture, which is like high C, capture C, that sort of thing. And that kind of gives us a snapshot about which regions of DNA interact with other regions of DNA. Uh, and it kind of gives a 2D matrix, uh, which is... Uh, if we're, and that's kind of quite difficult to interpret. And So if we're really going to understand the mechanism, it seems natural we should try and uh, see these data... Uh, as as it as it actually potentially looks like it, which is a three d uh kind of convoluted structure and it's basically it's another piece in the puddle that we puzzle that we can combine with a two d representation and actually in c synth we show like the two d matrix display and the three d um display as part of that um and um i mean c synth allows us to really compare data between lots of different disease states and different tissue types to see how the structures change in these. So, you know, how, how does it affect genes and how does, how does the regulatory elements get repositioned? Um, and actually it's been quite interesting because we do do some imaging at the Weatherall Institute. Uh, we've got a really nice imaging suite here. and um, We can actually see some of the modelling which we've done in C C-thin. Cthint does correspond quite nicely to some of the uh, actual uh, super-resolution microscopy images um and we know that um these kind of models aren't aren't perfect because you can't do single cell next generation sequencing for example but it's we're kind of on the way to doing that um i just sort of i think the good thing about C-Sync is it, the unique thing that we do that nobody else does is we do the modeling in real time because we do it using the gpu um and this opens up all the ways we can start looking at simulating dynamics in different tissues and different disease states and seeing what might happen when we remove elements, say, in vitro and compare them, how they're removing silico. And then we can start thinking about doing predictions. So back to the VR. Um, I mean, the VR component, I think, allows you to see the 3D structure more clearly. Um, but I think that's going to come more into play as we get larger and larger, more complex data sets that we
0: want to kind of visualize. So synth allows you to analyze DNA folding packing and 3D structure. Do you think it has the potential to delve a layer deeper to visualize the primary and secondary structures of DNA?
2: Um well, I mean already you can see the um the the different structures of you don't actually go down we're looking at chromatin which is quite a low level. It's kind of like the 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 one up from the actual like uh, raw raw DNA. Uh and there's potential to do that whether there's there whether there's an interest to do that. At this stage uh it is unclear I mean we're kind of really focusing on what the biologists want to do and I think there's lots of potential um for looking at the like the as i said the like the dynamics really and and how how that how that works and having this ability to be able to switch between different uh tissues or different say compare normal versus disease state, I think that's, and being able to see that, that transition is, is, is really useful.
1: Um, so you've also developed uh, tools to help visualise larger 3D structures um, obtained from a range of medical devices, and how do you hope that this will help researchers and, uh, and clinicians in the future?
2: Um, yeah, so this was really a development from the uh, CSID project because I, we had the kit for the virtual reality in the, in the office and I'm really interested in microscopy and I began experimenting with bringing in 3D data and images from the microscopes and so to enable that I learned uh, Unity which is a gaming programming framework basically um, because that's the best way to kind of do VR and I built the first version of what we now call Babel VR And we call it Babel because after the Babel Fish and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, because we want to be able to load as many 3D formats as possible from all different sort of modalities. And given we were next to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, uh, we literally, you know, we can walk almost like next door. It seemed naturally to start to talk to the people doing the imaging and the clinicians and to look to see if there was any kind of interesting use cases. And so as I was giving demos to various groups who were doing things like ultrasound, CT, MRI, they were getting really excited, the possibilities. And so on the basis of that, I got some seed funding from the university to look at this further. And really, I was keen um, to see whether virtual reality could make a difference beyond just visualization and start looking really into the interaction possibilities. Because you've got, with virtual reality, with the newer systems, you've got tracking, Um, controllers uh, and the hand positions are really precise Um, so you can do drawing and measuring virtual reality and so being able to do that with the 3D data seems like a natural fit so we built tools in Babel to do this. So for example we've got a group of um, heart surgeons who are really interested in the structure and remodelling of the heart and with the software they've currently got it was really difficult to do something as simple as measure a distance if they wanted to go preoperatively and look for replacing a heart valve and with Babel VR we could load in um, the, the ultrasound data they've got, measure the sizes um, and do that using, by just by directly rendering the 3D models from the ultrasound and then to manipulate a moving 3D heart model of a patient and they were really uh, blown away by the possibilities because what they can do now, they can do this preoperatively before they even open the patient up. So, this will save time in the operating theatre uh, because they don't have to kind of like try a valve uh, and then, you know, think, okay, that's the wrong one, and go to the next one, and have a bank of these kind of valves there. And this could save a lot of time um, and also not only save time but reduce the risk of infection and complications such as stroke. So, it could have an impact on mortality. And we're just kind of um, trialing these things out now.
0: Okay, that's great. Do you think virtual imaging methods will ever overtake physical imaging methods, such as cryo-ET, in terms of their importance and prevalence in scientific research? Or do they simply offer an additional angle from which to study biological systems?
2: Um, well, I, d- I don't think they'll overtake uh, the methods. I think, again, they're just another angle uh, which will be useful but uh, in some but not all use cases. So they'll be really useful um, when doing really deep analysis and looking at, say, dynamic systems where depth perception, I think, is very useful. Um, And, you know, maybe um, you could think about microscopy suites. You know, we've got to visualise, to look at data. Maybe we'll get virtual reality suites more embedded in different organisations. I know a few places where they're starting to have, like, virtual reality rooms in Oxford. We're looking at doing things like that. I mean, here at the WIM, the Weatherall Institute, we've got a meeting room where all the VR kits are set out and that doubles up as a meeting room. But um, the one area I'm really sort of key, keen on is really um, embedding um, VR into into everybody's workflow rather than it just being just a standalone operation that's where you have to physically go somewhere else. I think that's when it's going to really sort of like take off.
0: Okay, and in your opinion, what are the current limitations of these tools? What's preventing them from taking off and being used more widely in science?
2: Um, well, I think um, a general issue is um, usability. Um, so, I mean, there was, there, bioinformatics especially has got like, a history of really uh, quite poor interfaces. And actually virtual reality presents another challenge because you have to pretty much... R- rip up a lot of the rule book because you've got a you've got a three dimensional user interface. You've got a, a very large area that you can put anything in. Um so most of the standard metaphors that we use with mouse and keyboard and, you know, Windows don't apply. And we spent a lot of time looking at the usability of Babel VR and we've really sort of iterated round with, with users and We've tried to build some sort of architecture you can plug in new code without having to worry about the UI too much because we've kind of dealt with some of that. There's also uh, the thing I was just referring to earlier, which is kind of like the, almost like the geek factor. Uh, when you've got people wearing VR headsets in the office, it's not it's not exactly normal normal yet. Um, we've got obviously I've got uh, we do it at, at the whim, um, and it can raise a few eyebrows when like senior managers are kind of walking through like what are these guys doing. Um, and I think having systems where you can flip in and out of VR where appropriate is is really useful. I mean, I, I like to think of, you know, getting people into VR is a bit like when you've got a, a child and you've got, like, training bicycles, for example. Um, you put Sometimes you put people in virtual reality, and it's a big barrier because they go, OK, what do I do? I'm, You know, I can't see my hands. I can see these controllers. They don't really know what's kind of going on. And you really, you know, maybe we need to kind of transition these. Maybe we have you just put the headset on and you can use the mouse, maybe the keyboard's visible in there, so you've kind of got that reference and it kind of eases people into it. Another area which is um, an area that's kind of a bit of a problem in some of the things we do is compute power. So especially in microscopy, um, the images can be huge, they can be like terabytes, and that's way beyond the memory on standard um, GPUs, which we need to do to do the volume rendering. So you have to do clever tricks to accommodate this. Obviously, GPU memory and things will kind of go up over time, but uh, not everybody's got access to that. And I think that's where what's really interesting is cloud compute and that's coming in in low-latency networks such as 5G. If you look at um, the gaming industry, they're putting a lot of hopes into doing game streaming services, like, for example, like Google are, are looking at this. So you can run basically a top-end game that would normally require a a two thousand pound pc and you can stream that and run that on a mobile phone and i can see this is going to happen with uh virtual reality and augmented reality so basically you can have a very cheap lightweight device that perhaps looks something more like sort of fancy sunglasses and you'll just be uh streaming images at a very high uh rate and the interactions will be going back to the server and you'll be able to um interact as if you were working on a very high-end PC. And I think um, these sort of technologies, I think, could happen in the next two or three years, but a lot of this depends on how much VR and AR sort of take off in the meantime, I think.
1: So sort of just on the um, sort of scope beyond cutting-edge research, which can sort of seem a little bit out of reach at times to sort of non-scientists, uh, do you think virtual reality has a place to sort of get more sort of non-scientists on board with what, with what we're doing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with um, um the, the virtual reality, it's been uh, brilliant for outreach and public engagement. And it's really um, gets people uh, to think about being diseases just being caused by mutations in the genes, for example. So with CSYNTH, we've done the Royal Society Summer Exhibition, which is how we got a lot of the early work funded major scientific festivals such as the Cheltenham Science Festival, um, the Oxford Science Festival and various other things and it's uh, really great to see non-scientists uh, like kids, teenagers, uh, parents, older people uh, look at all these advanced concepts and really kind of get a good handle on it and it's quite nice that they can just go into virtual reality and not be distracted and Um, and also, um, we've been using it at the Weather Institute on patient days, for example. So we've, uh, there's a group here working on myasthenia gravis, and uh, we've got some um, imaging of uh, the muscle uh, and the neuron. It's a problem with the way the uh, uh, neural, neurons attach to the muscle fibres, and uh, we've got some images of that in colour, and they can manipulate those in 3D, and it really kind of, makes them really they're really interested in their disease condition helps them understand it better
1: and so what do you think is the sort of the future of virtual reality and life sciences over sort of the next five to ten years
2: i think um vr was uh, really hailed as a big thing i mean it's been hailed as a big thing several times in the industry uh, the last time i guess was 2016 and um i think it needs to build like a critical mass. And I think we were there originally in 2016, they were putting a lot of hopes on it being involved in uh, gaming and everybody was going to be hooked up to VR, you know, in a ready player one sort of style. But I think what we're finding is the critical mass is building in industry rather than home. So you've got lots of different groups, say architecture, design, um, place like tourism, and uh in sort of more biological sense you've got like therapy people doing uh, therapy in v r um and I think the i think as long as we can get um people excited about using and trying v r really i mean that's what really does it if if people sort of see v r and without just on a on a two d screen watch somebody do it until they've actually tried it, they don't really understand the potential i mean the number of times I've kind of got in and people have been like fairly kind of underwhelmed but as soon as they go into VR they can really see wow you know that's that's amazing I can really see how I can manipulate my data better I think that's going to be a a big part of it so it's also I think in terms of getting into life sciences I think we need to get some really strong um, papers uh, out so for example this is a challenge for peer review so for example how do reviewers adequately review new VR apps that are coming out unless they actually have the kit Um, and not everybody's got that. And you're starting to see uh, virtual reality applications coming out for things like single-cell analysis, for example, image analysis. And there's actually uh, companies developing apps in surgery uh, and imaging. Um, I mean, the problem um, with the, the commercial ones is they're very expensive and they're very slow to react to user requests. So I think If uh, the developers make sure they've got free tools or open source solutions with a low barrier to entry so that everybody uses them, that will be key. And that's really what we're focusing on with Babel VR and CSID. They're going to be uh, free to use uh, and open source.
0: I think there are some very interesting points there regarding the fact that this is such a new and different type of technology to be used in life science and that a lot of researchers won't be familiarised with using them Uh, or used to handling them so there will need to be a widening of knowledge in the community from researchers and peer reviewers uh, to publishers um, particularly in understanding how to apply these techniques and install them into everyday workflows which is obviously going to be quite a challenge so it'll be interesting to see where that goes in the future that's everything we have time for today it's been great to cover some of the intricacies of vr And thank you, Stephen, for speaking with us about such a new and exciting field of research.
2: No problem. Thanks very much for inviting me to
0: speak. I hope you've enjoyed that episode of the BioTechniques Talking Tech News podcast. If you would like to hear more, uh, we have plenty more episodes on our site in the podcast section, and we'll have another episode coming out next month. So join us then. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.